This is a survival thing that happens to us that when we're in a situation in which we need to be cranked up a little bit, that stress cranks us up. When we talk to people about stress being horrible for them, when we use pathologizing language, when we give kids the idea that they shouldn't be feeling this way at all, and we apply diagnoses to them all the time, when we start talking to kids about the fact that they should be happy all the time or that they should be able to manage everything all the time, that becomes a problem. Welcome to Flusterclux with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Flusterclux, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. Hi, Robin. Hi, Lynn. We're back. I've got a lot to say on this one. Uh huh. Fasten your seatbelts. Oh, good. I like it. Let it rip. Okay. Well, before I let it rip, do you want to just say something about the anxiety audit that we're putting together? I do. I do. So within the next few days, be sure to join the Facebook group so you'll get the announcement. We have a new course that is basically a book club that corresponds with your new book, The Anxiety Audit. Mm -hmm. We go through each chapter. We follow up with additional questions. We make sure that you know everyone's learning style is different. And I think that every single person will have some aha moments after reading the book and then watching the additional course sections per chapter. And then what we're going to do is we're going to have Q&As of your questions that we will go back and continue adding additional videos addressing them. Because I think that if we put some time and effort, and I say this as someone who has read the book and found this whole process to be so impactful for me, this is a chance to really tackle your patterns of anxiety, understand them and learn how you can respond differently to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's better than that? Right. Nothing. Nothing's better than that. That's the goal. Yeah. So it's cool. We have the course and then we're going to do Q&A follow-ups. So after you take the course, submit your questions. So it's going to be very interactive, which I love. Okay. What are we talking about today? Okay. So today we're talking about how we're talking to teenagers about their stress, about their emotions, about their mental health, because I'm hearing a lot. And probably I wanted to talk about this for a few... I always want to talk about this. This is something I talk about whenever I'm in front of people that will listen to me. But over the last few weeks, I have heard this message be echoed by people that I greatly respect. So that gave me a little courage to talk about it myself. And because, you know, it's New Year's and being all of these hosts and everything on social media... And a lot of them make me go, oh, God. So, okay. I shouldn't say what axe do you have to grind, but let's be honest. All right. So here's what happened. Let me set the stage for you a little bit. I hear a lot of messaging. I've talked about this a lot that is not helpful. I am very cognizant. I'm very aware of what we say to young people about their mental health. I'm very aware of how we're talking about it post-COVID. I'm aware of the headlines I see, the clickbait I see, the stories on CBS this morning that I see, 
the stories that I see, the articles in the New York Times, I'm just really paying attention to the language because language is powerful. And I am somebody who really values the way we talk about things and the way we present things. The reason that this is so important is because I'm not just making this up. Our language and how we discuss the emotional lives, the social lives, how we discuss that with our kids is making a big difference. And there is a trend right now, a movement right now that is very concerning to me. So let me give you an example. I was listening to Michelle Obama and she was, she's got a new book out. So she was on a podcast talking about something and she told a story. And what she said was that her daughter, Sasha, came to her. She said, I think she was like in middle school at that point, sixth or seventh grade. Sasha came to me and said, you know what? I'm anxious. And even sort of insinuated in this conversation, I'm anxious. I have anxiety and maybe I need medication. And Michelle said to Sasha, what are you anxious about? And Sasha said that she was anxious about some tests that she had coming up or that she had this homework assignment that she hadn't done, or she had this big project that was coming up and she felt really anxious about it. And Michelle said to her, you know what? You should be anxious about that. Those are appropriate feelings for this situation because you are being judged and also because you put off starting your homework assignment. And so now you're feeling the pressure of getting it done. And Michelle basically said to her daughter, which she then echoed in the podcast, it is okay for you to feel uncomfortable. She started talking about dealing with uncertainty. I felt like, Michelle, I'm walking, walking, listening to the podcast. It's like, she's saying what I say. She said, life is uncertain. We have to teach our kids to manage these emotions rather than having them come to us and talk about what's wrong with them. And so that sort of validated what I say all the time. I'd like to officially extend Michelle Obama an invitation to join us on an episode. Yeah, anytime, Michelle. Just yeah. give us a call. Just give us a call. We'll pick up. We will. Yeah. So that was really validating. I've heard her talk like that before, but it, as I was listening to this and she was really talking directly about her middle schooler and anxiety, I was pleased as punch to hear her talk about that. Then I was listening to another podcast, which I often listen to. And this person was talking about the science behind the way we perceive stress and how that impacts us. And when people are told that the stress that they're feeling is bad for them, when people are told that they shouldn't be feeling this stress, when people are made to feel or believe that they shouldn't be feeling any of this stress, the results are just as we would expect that the people do worse in terms of getting things done, in terms of their mental health. So the language that we use around stress and whether or not it's a helpful thing or an unhelpful thing has a huge impact in what you do with it. So saying to somebody, you're supposed to feel stressed by this and that actually a certain amount of stress is good for you, that our bodies are looking for a little bit of an adrenaline boost in order to get things done. He was putting it in terms of our biology and our neurology, that this is a survival thing that happens to us, that when we're in a situation in which we need to be cranked up a little bit, that stress cranks us up. When we talk to people about stress being horrible for them, when we use pathologizing language, when we give kids the idea that they shouldn't be feeling this way at all, and we apply diagnoses to them all the time, when we start talking to kids about 
the fact that they should be happy all the time or that they should be able to manage everything all the time, that becomes a problem. It reminded me of this article that I read, which we can post in the show notes that I read several years ago called Rethinking Butterflies. And I may have even referred to this article on the podcast. I certainly refer to it when I'm out speaking where they looked at how it is that people perceive the symptoms that they're having, how they perceive the stress that they're having, how they normalize or pathologize the experience that you have, and it's called rethinking butterflies, of of feeling nervous going into a job interview or nervous about to step onto a stage. The more that we talk to our kids about the fact that they shouldn't be feeling this way in any situations, the more harm we are doing to their ability to manage what life throws at them. Anxiety wants certainty and comfort. And as soon as we buy into that as the goal, we are doing the disorder. The final thing that sort of put me to this place where I decided I was going to get on this soapbox today is that I was looking at an article that was put out a few years ago by the National Association of School Psychologists. Now, I don't know the person who wrote the article, and if I looked at the bio, I think it was graduate students. I'm not going to use their names, but it was in the newsletter for the National Association of School Psychologists. It said that when you are trying to help anxious children in a classroom, that one of the key things is that you do not surprise them or give them unexpected things during the day because this makes their anxiety worse. The goal, they said, is to make sure that they have warnings and information about any possible change in the schedule, that you should let parents know ahead of time if there's going to be a change. I've seen this many, many places. I just happened to come across it again as I was doing some research for a presentation that I'm going to be doing upcoming. So all of those things that hit me in the last few weeks, which if you listened to the episode last week when I said I had a dream that I was hurting 100 kittens, this probably contributed to that. This message over and over and over again that we need to make sure that our kids are doing well, all the time is harmful if we pathologize, if we diagnose, and if we don't give them the room to feel what they're going to feel and develop the skills of emotional management. Anyway, there it is. There's my rant to everybody from all sorts of different sources. Okay. We have a lot to unpack, so let's take a break. Okay. Let's take a break. I need a break. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option. 
option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. Okay, we're back. Okay, let's talk about that last article first, because you just read that. And when Mm -hmm. you were citing it, it's funny because we have a lot of school psychologists who are regular listeners. Yes. A lot of them just went to Google right now. They're like, oh my God, who has just been? (laughs) They're like, I hope that wasn't someone that they know. Because the thing is, not everyone who is in mental health has the experience and the expertise and the outcomes you do in managing anxiety. You are basing this and you are trying to shift the dialogue and shift the approach because you know what works. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for people who are new, like trying to prevent your child from having surprises in a classroom, I think you need to state the obvious for newer listeners of why that's a bad idea. Well, because surprises will happen. As much as you try to make sure that school is absolutely predictable, that nothing unexpected happens, that's not a realistic approach to get your kids through school. Life is uncertain and anxiety demands certainty. It demands to know exactly what's going to happen. Now, the thing about this is that I see this all the time. I see this idea that in order to deal with kids who have anxiety in school, we have to make sure that everything is calm and organized and predictable. So I see this all the time. I see this idea that in order to help anxious kids, we have to make sure that their days are predictable. And the thing that really got me going about this is that it was the school psychologists who were writing this, right? 
as you're listening to this, I hear from schools all the time, well, we aren't trying to treat the anxiety. We're not a therapeutic school setting. We're just trying to help these kids get through the day. And so we're just trying to give them the things that they need in order to make sure that they don't freak out or in order to make sure that their anxiety doesn't get worse. And if predictability can make that happen, then we're going to offer them predictability because it helps us move through the day. Now, the problem with that is that all we have to do is expand that out a little bit. If you had a high school kid coming into school in the morning and saying, the way that really helps me get through the day is if I can just do a bong hit before first period, nobody would say, all right, let's just give him a bong hit and get him through the day. If we set this up over and over and over again, that the way to help kids deal with what their difficulties are, are to do the very things that make the difficulties worse, that's not a solution. And I'm afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm clear actually, that that's what's happening over and over and over again. So you have so many schools that are contributing to Well, you talk about it as a cult leader. Mm -hmm. The schools are just following the orders of the cult leaders. What if the school psychologists and the teachers are pushing back saying, we don't have the time and resources to offer therapy in class. So our goal is simply just to delay or push that freak out onto a different scenario, but not in my classroom. Okay. So you can say that. Everybody can say that. And then we also can't keep saying, why are our kids so anxious? Oh my gosh, we're having an epidemic of anxiety. It must be because of this. It must be, oh gosh, we have to figure this out. At this point, if we're going to call this a crisis, which everybody is, if the Surgeon General of the United States has declared that kids' mental health is one of the top issues that we need to address as a country, we can't keep doing the things that make anxiety worse and then being confused or being upset or wringing our hands that we're doing the things that are making anxiety worse. So I get it that it's a paradigm shift, but this model that we have fallen into, that the way you help kids deal with uncertainty and distress is to try and take it all away. And even the teachers that would say to me, or even the administrators that would say to me, gosh, we just don't have time to do it. They will also acknowledge, I know we get it. We get it. It's not working long term. I understand that it's a big paradigm shift. And one of the things that I talk about on the road all the time, going to schools, saying, how do we weave these concepts as early as possible? How do we weave them in so that we are not sort of shrugging our shoulders and saying, well, there's nothing we can do. I guess we have to give them the bong hit, right? I mean, I'm using that as a metaphor, But it really is putting the time in now to rethink the way that we're talking about all of this with kids is really going to pay off. The thing that is absolutely happening, it is absolutely happening, is that our young people, particularly adolescents and young adults, have no bearing, have no compass as to what normal is anymore. And when I hear them talk about their stress or their anxiety, and when I hear them talk about depression, when I hear them talk about their moods, when I hear them talk about the way that they're handling relationships, when I hear them talk about boundaries, I can hear what they're saying is from this place of, this is a crisis. If you don't feel this way all the time, it's a problem. Kids are getting increasingly anxious about being anxious 
They see themselves as fragile. They see themselves as incapable of managing what life throws at them. And there has been some pretty consistent messaging that the kids are not all right. They are hearing us. They are hearing the language that we're using. They're hearing the way we're talking about it. And they are believing us. They are believing us. And we need to do better. So I have gotten a listener question in the Facebook group too, though, from a teacher. After we did the episode on every high school and college student who needs the boost and the pep talk should listen Mm -hmm. to this episode. Mm -hmm. Well, a teacher rightly wrote in and said, well, we teachers could use that episode too. Mm. So uh, let's also address the fact that all the people who work in schools right now For those who want to resist your message a little bit, Mm -hmm. they're going to think about the content of COVID and the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Why don't you bring the pandemic into this and explain a little bit of what the pandemic did do and what it didn't do? And there was a timeline because... We mm-hmm. were kind of in trouble before the pandemic anyway. Mm-hmm. Then you Not add kind the pan- of. Yeah. We were in trouble before the pandemic and then you add the pandemic. So why don't you put this all into context? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, thank you for saying that about the teacher saying they needed a pep talk. And my soapboxing right now is much more directly aimed at my profession because the teachers are not supposed to be doing therapy in the classroom. I feel like my profession has done this in a way that we need to own big time. Teachers, I'm not saying that you're the ones that are creating this. Also, teachers aren't in charge of coming up with accommodations. Teachers aren't the ones that are saying, you know, this is how I need to accommodate this student. They're getting letters from outside providers. They're getting letters from people that are saying you have to accommodate. So teachers, you did not create this system. And I get that you are trying to deal with it and probably feel as frustrated oftentimes as I do by it. And if the advice of the National Association of School Psychologists is that you create certainty in your classroom, that's not on you either. But just be aware that that's not helpful and that you don't have to say like, gosh, I'm supposed to do that. What we saw during the pandemic was that kids were isolated, kids were lonely, there was some definitely learning loss, everybody was stressed, and as Robin, you said, we didn't go into this teaching kids the right things, particularly teenagers is what I'm talking about. We didn't go into this pandemic talking to them about, like Michelle was talking to Sasha, that you're supposed to feel anxious in certain ways and that you are supposed to have heartbreak and that it's okay for your moods to go down and up and that as an adolescent, you will think and feel things very intensely. We didn't go into the pandemic telling kids that. Then when the pandemic happened, there has been a panic and some of it is absolutely legitimate. There has been a panic about kids being able to recover from this, kids being able to manage what life is throwing at them. The suicide rates are up. That is the truth. Depression is up. Anxiety is up. So I'm not saying that we're making all of this up. We absolutely are in a situation right now, in a circumstance right now where kids are struggling big time. To me, we need to just back up and start talking about how are we going to give the message to kids that they are capable of recovering, that they are capable of managing. I may have referenced the woman I heard speak on resilience when I was at a Challenge Success event 
another speaker talking about the definition of resilience is not that you handle everything, but that you are able to recover and get back to baseline after challenges happen. That's the language we need to be talking about right now. Kids, teenagers right now are hearing from us over and over and over again that they have permanent afflictions, that they are wounded, damaged in a way that is unprecedented. That's the language that they're hearing. Well, it's also the complexity as I hear my own high school daughter kind of come home and share with me what their own wellness curriculum is Mm -hmm. in an effort to try and normalize mental health. They have, unfortunately, rather than just said, it's okay to have these feelings, it goes a step further. It's okay to have these diagnoses. And they've, they've taken it to the point of a diagnosis. Could you just speak one thing, though, when we go back to COVID? And I know that you have said this, you know, over the course of a few episodes, especially during 2020. Mm-hmm. If we were not in, you call it an elimination culture. And what you mean by that, is, as I've understood, is that if we have tried to eliminate uncomfortable, eliminate uncertainty, and that's how we've handled a mental health approach with our kids up until that point, we're going to take away the things that distress them. Mm-hmm. The COVID came. And when you have been living in a culture where you're trying to avoid uncertainty and eliminate things you can't control, you had nothing. You right. had no tools to right. handle what was an incredibly stressful circumstance for so many people. Mm-hmm. If you were a family that had some of your tools in place, you would have verbalized and managed the uncertainty of the pandemic mm-hmm. with a little more guidance, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, And so I think that that's also a critical thing to accept is that we haven't been teaching skills. Mm-hmm. We haven't been emphasizing the right things. And the pandemic pushed that to the point where that was like a perfect storm. Right. Yeah. If we went into the pandemic believing that our goal was to create certainty for our kids, that our goal was to eliminate distress, that our goal was to make sure that everything went smoothly... And then the pandemic hit, you're right, like, oh my God, how how do we do that, right? Suddenly we were living in uncertainty and we couldn't get what we wanted and it was scary and it was new and it was overwhelming. Prior to the pandemic, when I was feeling particularly feisty, because I do pay attention to what I say, but I'll tell you, it's just hard to keep speaking so carefully and diplomatically all the time. So that's what you're getting today is me not being as careful and diplomatic as I often am. But I was saying in front of parents and in front of schools, we are raising a generation of emotionally ill-equipped kids, and it is going to catch up with us. I was saying that before the pandemic, and then the pandemic hit, and now we're post-pandemic, and we're just seeing this, you know, again, what's referred to as a crisis and an epidemic. We need to step back and think about the language that we're using. And Robin, I love what you said about normalizing because I think you're exactly right. In the attempt to destigmatize mental illness or to talk more openly about mental health struggles, which is all great, I don't think it's been done very well because what we haven't done is normalize the struggles that human beings have 
we haven't talked to kids about that it's okay to feel this way and how to get help and that you will come out of this. We haven't talked about it that way enough. What we have said is it is okay for you to have this disease. It is okay for you to have this mental illness. We have normalized pathologizing that has inhibited the ability for parents and adults and teachers to talk to kids, to help them move through the difficulties that life throws at them. We've said to them, now you have this thing. The language of permanence is pervasive. And when we say to young people, you have this stress and stress is bad, or you have these moods and moods are bad, or you have this anger and anger is bad, or you have this fill in the blank, We are not giving them positive expectancy. We are not giving them the language that skills help us move through tough things. I just want to interject for people who don't know that positive expectancy is the belief that things can change and it's the foundation of the treatment of depression that you endorse. When we are talking about the permanence of a diagnosis and we say, you have depression and you are depressed. And this is who you are. Mm -hmm. It's the exact opposite of what we know, in fact, can help treat depression. Right. Just want to make a reference to we've done earlier episodes very specific to this topic of what should a family do constructively after their teenager has received a depression diagnosis? What does the work look like at that point? Right. As opposed to checking out because it is what it is. Right. And leaving it up to a prescription. Right. The message I want to make sure that people get as I'm saying all of this is that anxiety is real. Depression is powerful and devastating. It is not that I am saying these things don't exist. But if we say to our teenagers... If you have this difficulty, if you are dealing with this, there is a wide range of bad circumstances or feelings or reactions or emotions that you can have. And if we say to our teenagers, this is who you are, you have this permanent condition, you have this disease that's best treated with medication, which is not what the research says, and we are not teaching them skills, we are not looking at the basics We are not looking at behavioral interventions that really, really help. Then we are not teaching our kids how to better manage their mental health. We are teaching them how to become less effective at managing their mental health. Therapy is really, really helpful. And I know it's hard for a lot of families to get right now. Getting treatment. And when I say treatment, I am not talking about just drugs. I am talking about learning how your brain operates, educating yourself about the process of depression. Depression just doesn't show up. Anxiety just doesn't show up. Thinking about how we can empower young people, how we can educate them, how we can give them accurate information so that they don't so quickly default to this idea of, I have this thing, and it becomes their identity. When I heard Michelle talking about it, it was like music to my ears. When I listened to this other podcast reinforcing the importance of language that we use to talk about stress, 
you know, I just was walking in thinking, I just got to talk about this again on the podcast because it is so important. When we come back, let's take a break. But when we come back, let's talk about really good, positive language that families can introduce and that people in your profession can too. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy the Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of the Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Okay, we're back. So let's talk now about if you're a parent and this has resonated with you, you know, your kids don't have to have had a diagnosis of anxiety or depression for this to be relevant Mm -hmm. because in I'm a parent of a high schooler and there are kids who have and how it's talked about and how it's handled. You even want to give your own kids the tools and perspective of responding in a productive and constructive way about their own friend's mental health too. Right. This all happens in a system. Yes, it all happens in a system. So that's a very good point. And one of the things that's so helpful about having you weigh in on this, Robin, is that you do have a high schooler. So you are in the middle of it. You are hearing it. I'm disappointed sometimes by the content that they're told at school because, you know, as a parent, what I did and I suggest to listeners of the podcast who have read your books and stuff too is we talk about, well, what do you think is the good content here? And what do you think, what would Mm -hmm. Lynn do? You know, my daughter is, has a very critical ear. She listens to the stuff 
and now she's a junior, so she's more sophisticated at 17 than she was at 14. But she comes home and she's like, oh, yeah, Lynn would have a lot to say about this. <laughs> yes, I'm sure Lynn and would. We t- and we talk about that. And she hears other kids talk about how all the varieties of content are like, oh, I don't do that because of my anxiety or this is triggering my anxiety. And so she sees the families that are all in with the anxiety as the cult leader of the family and producing an elimination culture. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So what can we do about this? What can families do about this? I would highly recommend that if you haven't listened to the episode from last week where we talked about the phrases that you should use with your children, that would be a really good place to start. The phrases that we used and the language that we use is about developing emotional management. The other thing that I think we need to recognize is that as we're helping our teenagers move away from this pathologizing, this identification culture that they've been steeped in, for one, we have to remember it's not their fault. The messages are everywhere. I also had a very interesting conversation with a colleague at a conference that I was at last week. She is a grief expert. And she said to me, with grief, the pushing back, the denial, the anger, because I was telling her how uh, high school students will come up to me after presentations and be like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. She said, that's a really interesting part of the grief work that I do, is that anger and that pushing back and that denial. She said, so maybe you need to just think about that as a part of the process. So when somebody comes up to you and pushes back against you and says, well, I heard this or this isn't working or how dare you invalidate me, that that's a really good jumping off point to have a discussion, which is what your daughter is learning is how to have that critical ear. So as you're bringing this up with young people, if you're listening to this as a teacher or as a school counselor or as a parent, as a clinician, when you bring this up with teenagers and they push back, this really hit me between the eyes when she said this. She said, this is not an argument that you're supposed to have with them. This is an opportunity for you to help create critical thinkers. And how are you going to do that? So we go right back to those how questions. It was really sort of a, a like boing moment for me when she said that. So we want to help our kids question the information that they're hearing. So we can ask those how questions. How did you come to that conclusion about yourself? Or how did you begin to believe that you're not capable of handling fill in the blank? Or what do you think when you hear people talk about their triggers? And what do you think about avoiding triggers as a way to manage this? How do you think about that? And begin to have a conversation with them that allows them to question it. Because if you come right back at them and say, well, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong, that's just going to set up that defensiveness. Being able to say to them, ask that question, be curious, say, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what evidence is there to support that? Or where are you getting your information? Or I wonder if there are other ways to look at this. Because we need to have open conversations with our young people about this messaging. And they're very defensive about people feeling like or believing that it's not real, right? Like, how dare you say that? I hear that a lot. How dare you say that I'm not depressed? How dare you say that this isn't genetic? How dare you say we need to have those conversations? So ask questions that create a critical thinker. 
That's, I think, the key to this. Those questions are, that's interesting. I haven't heard that. Or, gosh, I heard something that said that that's kind of an unhelpful way to interpret your stress. Or, I wonder what you would consider normal levels of stress as you're going through your exam period. Being able to talk to them about it, I think, is a much better approach than telling them that, as I've just ranted for the last how many minutes, telling them that this is ridiculous and I can't believe you think that, right? We want to have conversations and dialogue about it. If you think about this from the perspective of the opening example you gave with Michelle Obama, Mm -hmm. if you have reinforced a message that it was normal to feel distress, that it was normal to feel sadness, that it was normal to feel worry... If you haven't given that groundwork, and then when an adolescent feels all of those things, if the only conclusion they can come to is that they have a mental health diagnosis, Mm -hmm. it's not mysterious. Right. Yep. This is where we really have to work, that I really have to work with the panic of the parents. And I understand the panic of the parents because the environment has been so catastrophic and the language in the headlines have been so catastrophic. So I understand the panic of the parents. We just need to rethink and we need to talk differently to our kids, to our young people about the skills we need and we need to normalize their struggles. That doesn't mean deny their struggles. It means we need to normalize it and support it and validate it. We just don't need to pathologize it and make it permanent. That's the thing that is so, so harmful right now for our young people. So you can say to your teenager, I totally get it. I totally get it, right? Of course you feel that way. Of course your heart is broken. Of course you're totally stressed. How can I help? And is there anything we can do together or is there anything you need to do that would help you manage this difficult situation? The answer is not in avoidance. It's not in elimination. It's not in diagnosing all the time. But look, I'm not against diagnosing. Kids have diagnoses all the time that I see. It's about talking about it in a permanent way. One of the things that I do, if you've listened to all of our episodes, you'll know that I had my best friend in high school committed suicide Mm -hmm. who had manic depression. How we talked about it then or lack of conversation about it then versus now One of the things that I have learned as a parent that I plan on using because I've known people who've suffered from depression throughout my life. Now, from what I've learned from you is that I always talk about depression being chapters. Mm -hmm. Depression could have a chapter that's a day, Mm -hmm. a week, months, but it's always in chapters and that you never talk about it as a permanent diagnosis. Yeah. And that chapters of depression, whether they're an hour or longer, is very normal. So those kinds of things I've learned uh, just to be a more supportive friend or or mom when Mm -hmm. this stuff comes up. That's language that I think is useful. Yeah. Well, and let me just say, as you say this, like when we're talking about mental illness, I do make a big distinction between the mental illness of, say, schizophrenia and even bipolar disorder. I'm not talking about bipolar. I don't work with that. So there is a differentiation to be made with that, which I think is important. But again, still need to be aware of the quick 
and often permanent diagnostic language that we're giving kids. Because I do hear kids say like, well, I was in a good mood yesterday and then I was in a bad mood today, so I must be bipolar, right? That's not what this is. So they're reading about it. I mean, I've talked about this. They're reading about it. They're learning about it. They're finding ways that they fit into these categories. There's a huge amount of self-diagnosing that's going on. We need to just change the language in a way that, like you say, talks about it in terms of chapters, talks about it in terms of hope, talks about it in terms of what we do that helps because therapy helps. Therapy helps. Sleep helps. Exercise helps. Connection, relationships, emotional literacy, all the things I talk about all the time really, really help. Deciding that you have a permanent condition that you can do nothing about is the opposite of the message that we want to give our kids. You've said this in so many words, but if we as parents, and I'm sure clinicians as well, if we checked in with ourselves and made sure, are we doing everything we can to normalize uncomfortable feelings before we're normalizing diagnoses? Mm -hmm. That would be a really big shift. Yeah. And normalize does not mean invalidate. I just want to make sure that everybody is clear about that. Grief is normal. It's also incredibly powerful. You know that more than anybody. So normalizing doesn't mean invalidating or dismissing or minimizing. It also means that we are welcoming our young people into experiences that are universal as human beings and that we can love and support them through those experiences. And it's not who they are in their entirety. It's not. Okay. So Robin just said to me, is there any chipper ending to this? Right? So here's the chipper ending. We know a lot about mental health and we don't know a lot about mental health. So there's all sorts of research and stuff coming out all the time and it can be really overwhelming and really confusing. I think it's really helpful for parents to hear that as you're trying to navigate through this tricky adolescent time with your kids, look at the basics. Don't give up on the basics before you do anything else. Think about whether or not they're getting enough sleep, that they have positive connections, that they're outside in the world. Pay attention to screen time. Pay attention to what they're putting into their bodies. Think about those things in terms of the basics before you jump to big catastrophic conclusions. Again, you may need some help figuring out how to put the basics together. Therapy is really, really helpful. Getting coaching, getting guidance is really, really helpful. But don't panic and don't pathologize. Start with the basics and then take it from there. Make sure you listen to last week's episode because when you hear the parenting phrases that you recommend, Lynn, what you're ultimately doing is creating a culture of family dialogues around emotions where you're expanding your toolkit. Mm -hmm. You're expanding your toolkit. If you are concerned about your kids, seek out help. I'm saying get help, get help, get help. Just don't jump to that diagnostic pathologizing place that our young people are so quick to jump to. If this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community and we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn.
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.